you've marked hymn number 86, as Brother Adam asked us to do, as we will sing that in a few moments at the close of the lesson, perhaps we might begin with the refrain of Psalm 89, verse 52, Blessed be the Lord, amen and amen. Even as we're gathered tonight on an occasion like this when we have the capability in our deeds and actions to bring glory unto Him, and perhaps indeed as we are blessed by our gathering, we also can recognize the eternal good we may accomplish in our hearts and in those who perhaps may be aware of that which we do tonight, the glory and indeed the goodness that is revealed in the Word of God. We've reached, of course, that month of December, this being the third day of that month, but somewhat later in this month will be that rather well-known celebration of the Christmas or holiday season. And perhaps as we often recognize what soon will be apparent on so many occasions, nativity scenes and other express references to the birth of our Savior, perhaps tonight would be a worthwhile time for us to revisit the inspired revelation of the birth of our Savior, and to remind ourselves of the eternal nature of that event, and even today, what is the benefit for us as it relates to that very marvelous set of events. With that said, might we begin, in terms of an introduction, by thinking of some of the following ideas. None of us need to be especially reminded of what a truly remarkable event the birth of a baby is. It's anticipated for months. In fact, there's so much happiness and joy typically as we perceive the going to the hospital and the bringing home of that youngster. As the parents work diligently to select the name, they get the nursery ready at the house. In fact, the entire community may well celebrate on the occasion of a shower. Truly, it's a remarkable and truly a fantastic event. As you and I think about the birth of a child, and as we think about all that that entails and all that it means for our life, might we pause, though, and remember that there was a time now, about 20 centuries ago, right at 2,000 years, when in the Middle Eastern part of our world, a Middle Eastern couple had a child. In fact, as that child came into being, as it was born, the world hasn't been the same since. In fact, it was an extremely remarkable birth. What made it so special? How and in what way did it alter and change the course of human events? The very mention of the name of Jesus and his birth, truly a remarkable event. And you and I can perceive in the nature of the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but especially Matthew and Luke, many incredible things stated. And tonight, let's piece those together one step at a time. And as we do that, let's try to place them in a chronological sequence. To do that, we will begin by studying the events prior to his birth. What happened that led up to the birth of our Savior? The Bible does give us significant information about that, and once we've studied that, then we'll turn our attention to those events of the birth, what exactly happened, and in the way that it happened in accord to the will of God. Perhaps it might well be noted that we could call this the birth of the ages. And as we refer to it in that way, might I begin by asking you to think with me about, again, those events that led to it. As one turns through the pages of the Old Testament, we readily learn many things about the nature of the coming one that was to be born. God, through his prophets, had made note of that fact for centuries. And suddenly, once we come to the events of the opening chapter of Matthew, we read about a man named Joseph. 
This man named Joseph, notice a few characteristics of him briefly with me. Joseph, we're told, was of Galilee. That is to say, he lived in Nazareth. We're told that there in Luke 2, verse 4. Not only that, we readily learn in Matthew 13, 55 that his occupation was a carpenter. On one occasion, our Savior was called, Art not thou the son of the carpenter, the carpenter's son? Interestingly enough, this same man, we learn, had a very special lineage. Amazingly, he was descended from David, and that meant also a descendant of Abraham. You see, this man named Joseph had an impressive lineage through which he was descended. But just as certainly as one can make mention of him, we immediately encounter a young woman. Consider Mary with me briefly. Mary was a young lady, a young maiden, if you will. We easily understand that, especially in Luke chapter 1, she, being rather young, was nonetheless a person who was innocent and pure. She, too, was descended through David. Both of them, in fact, could trace their lineage, as we read in Luke chapter 3, back to that powerful and great and understood king of ancient Israel. The very thought alone is an impressive one. Here were these two, and amazingly enough, they had made arrangements to marry. Now here is where one would do well to recall, if we might, one of the interesting differences between that day and this one. Today you and I have a feeling and an understanding that marriage works when that man and woman in a public ceremony are wed, and from that point they live together and they enjoy all of the facets and aspects of a communal home, one with the other. It wasn't that way, though, in the Middle Eastern part of our world in the first century. That leads to a small bit of difficulty as we read some of these passages. Joseph and Mary, as we read in Matthew 1, verses 18 and following, it says they were espoused. You and I might read that. The closest thing you and I would see today is engaged, but that still really doesn't do it justice. In every real sense in that day, they were married. That means, if you would understand with me, the following. In that day, the young man and the young woman had, if you will, an initial agreement. Perhaps it was helped to become so by virtue of the influence of their families or the decisions that maybe the fathers had made. But at any rate, once that agreement, if you will, had been settled upon, in terms of them being married, they were legally, if you will, at that point. For instance, if the husband died, she would be considered his widow, even though they didn't live together yet. Typically, at least several months would pass from the time of that initial agreement until the final time would come when they would live together. In fact, that time of living together was a time of great celebration. And it reminds us of that scene that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 25. Remember the five wise and the five foolish virgins? The five that were foolish had brought enough oil only to last a little while. The five that were wise brought not only enough to last a little while, but even if the bridegroom delayed his coming, they would still have enough oil. That's the very scene under description. When finally the time would come when they would begin to live together, the bridegroom would go to the house of the, the bride's father, and there he would bring her in, in somewhat a great pomp and circumstance, a time of celebration, she would be brought to his abode, to where they would live together, 
And there was the celebration time. There's when the virgins would go in on the scene of that parable and celebrate. Joseph and Mary, though again they had been married by the early affairs of that land, they had not yet begun to live together. Nonetheless, we easily understand that as the scenes unfolded, isn't it amazing that an angel appears to Mary? We read, if you will, there in Luke chapter 1, a remarkable scene of events. As this angel Gabriel appeared to her, he told her a message, a revelation that must have astounded her. I'd ask that you read with me beginning in Luke 1, and let's especially begin in verse 28. Luke 1, verse 28. This is again the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that are highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the high shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Isn't it amazing that the angel then stated to her, Thou art highly favored. Thou shalt conceive and bring forth a son. Jesus shall be the name which you shall give unto him. And furthermore, he shall be great. He shall reign over that very throne of David and of that kingdom over which he shall rule. There shall be no end. Immediately, perhaps, in her mind could rush forward the things that must have eclipsed through her mind. Ever since God had revealed the first promise about the coming one, the coming Messiah, no doubt every woman of the tribe of Judah must have hoped that it would be her. Every woman must have hoped that through her seed and her lineage the Christ would come. Never had it been known until now who it would be, and here Gabriel reveals to Mary she was the selected one. She was the chosen lady. Through her seed, the very one to whom she would give birth would be the one that had been looked forward to for millennia. She would give birth to the Christ. He would reign on the throne of David. Of his kingdom there would be no end. He would be great. You can imagine the wonderful thoughts that ran through her mind, and it's no wonder that she sang a song of thanksgiving and praise later in this chapter. Beginning in verse 48, Mary's song is recorded. If you'll notice at this point, though, an interesting thought had been revealed to her that she'd give birth, and yet she'd never known a man. She immediately perceived the difficulty in that in her mind, and of course our minds would easily appreciate that too. In a moment we'll see how God remedied that difficulty, but for now let us notice, again, she and Joseph had not lived together yet. One can only understand then what ran through Joseph's mind when he came to appreciate that this woman to whom he was married but yet had not lived with her was pregnant. 
Needless to say, Joseph, according to Matthew 1, verses 19 and 20, was a just man and was not willing to make a public spectacle of Mary, and he was determined to put her away privately. He was convinced that her character was such that she had cheated, if you will, on him. She had not been faithful because she was with child, but yet it was not his. We can well understand in Matthew chapter 1, how another, and also an angel appears to Joseph. As this angel appears unto him, we can well understand the message was as follows. Joseph need not be concerned about Mary's character. He need not be concerned about Mary's difficulties or that which was perceived in his mind because she... Because she, in fact had been faithful and true to him. You see, it was the Holy Ghost that had come upon her. That which had been conceived in her was not of a man. That which had been conceived in her was not due to physical arrangement with another man. It was by virtue of the revelation, by virtue of God's inspiration, by virtue of the Holy Spirit's descent. We noted that in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Can we then understand and notice also remarkably how that this was a seminal event in the history of the world? Here was a lady giving birth who had known no man. That had never happened before and hasn't happened since. It's a very special birth, obviously. Miraculous, absolutely. Can we then appreciate so easily some thoughts that appear directly? It had been stated that this would occur. We noted a moment ago, and it was stated again just in case we missed it, in Matthew 1, verse 25, that up until she gave birth to Jesus, she had never known a man. She was a virgin. Interesting, isn't it, that some in our day have called that into question. There are some in our higher places of learning who don't believe that. Amazingly, when a poll was taken not many years ago now, almost half of those that responded being graduates of some particular sets of seminaries or other schools, stated they did not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. One can only be amazed. Because not only was it stated here in the New Testament, it was prophesied in the Old. You and I would have to call into question both testaments of Scripture in order to not believe in the virgin birth. The prophet Isaiah, seven and a half centuries prior to the birth of our Savior, God speaking through him stated in Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. That happened in the reality of Mary giving birth to the Christ child. When Mary gave birth having known no man, and the Holy Spirit had come upon her to make that possible. The remarkable thing about that birth, of course, not only being prophesied, but now in its reality, we so easily can appreciate the nature and how so many, even in the Lord's day, had difficulty with the real reality of it. The Son of God came at the time when it was proper, at the time when it was appropriate, and at the time when it was right. Again, we noted that Isaiah had said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bring forth a son. Notice some of the statements in which God reveals to us the fact that Jesus did not come accidentally. He did not come by mere coincidence. In Galatians 4 verse 4, there the inspired apostle made this statement. 
He noted that, interestingly and also powerfully. He said that Christ came in the fullness of time. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law. The fullness of time, that means the correct, the propitious, the right time. Jesus came when all of history was prepared for him to come. But not only that, in Romans 5, beginning in verse 6, the amazing statement of the due time. Paul began that with these words. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet, peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his life, we shall be saved. As Paul made those points, recall with me, he said in due time, due time. In fact, the historical record informs us that things had been prepared. Both Joseph and Mary being descendants through David, the events of history had been orchestrated until the right time. And when that time came, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. And amazingly, as Jesus entered this world, his mission was, of course, to provide for you and me ultimately a means of reconciliation to draw us back unto God. The birth of Jesus, indeed, a remarkable series of events. But yet, perhaps more might be said when we come to the actual time of the birth itself. We've noted a few of the events leading to it. Consider these events with me as well, if you would. Those events at Jesus' birth. As we consider these things, in our hearing a moment ago was read from Luke chapter 2. Those first 11 verses of that chapter are some of the more well-known regarding the actual events of the Lord's birth. I would ask that you think with me about some of the high points. It all begins in verse number 1 with a Roman Caesar named Augustus. History informs us that he did reign. That gives us one other piece of evidence of the reality of the Scriptures. There was really a Roman leader, emperor by that name. But isn't it amazing that in verses 2 and 3, the King James Version mentions a taxing that took place. You and I would better recognize that by the word census. It's not as though Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem in order to pay taxes. They went there because the emperor had given a decree that the entire kingdom was to be enrolled. That is, a census was to be taken so that their numbers could be understood and determined. As we can well appreciate, the place that they were to go was that city that corresponded to their family's history. Joseph was of the lineage of David, and Bethlehem was the city of David, and thus it was to Bethlehem that these two needed to go in order to be enrolled. And thus, that's what they did. As they went, though, to that place, the text simply informs us that the time came that Mary was to deliver. The time for the conclusion of the pregnancy had come. However, though they were from Nazareth, she didn't give birth in Nazareth. Even though one might have thought it'd be Jerusalem, they weren't in Jerusalem. They were in Bethlehem. Isn't it amazing, that tiny little dot, that tiny little place in an out-of-the-way country on the far side of the globe gave birth to the man, the very Son of God, who would change the entire planet. As Jesus was born in Bethlehem, we might well recall 
know that that too was prophesied. And what great counsel and encouragement we find when we turn back again over six centuries in time. We remember the prophet Micah. In Micah 5 verse 2, had made known that Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be small, out of thee shall come the governor, the leader who shall reign and rule. Little Bethlehem was to be the place where the Christ was to be born. You see, God wrote history before it happened. Micah didn't just guess that it would be in Bethlehem. He, by the very power and revelation of God, had made known that would be the place. And thus it was to there that Joseph and Mary had gone, and at the time she gave birth in that location. Consider some of the other things that took place in that same, in that same event. We read also in verse 7 in Luke chapter 2, the very interesting thought that there was no room in the inn. Here was the greatest birth of all time, the Son of God entering and taking the form of human flesh, but yet there was no room in the inn. In fact, its text informs us that he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Jesus didn't enter this world like the son of most kings that are on our planet today. If the king of Saudi Arabia were to have a son, no doubt the finest of everything would be procured and utilized to welcome him into the world. This was a son of God. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a feeding trough. Born in a barn, if you will, and yet he was the Son of God. Isn't that amazing? Humble to be sure. Certainly by no way a record of the pomp and circumstance that one might have thought, and that very idea gave so much difficulty to the Jews of that day. They expected a king in his splendor. A king he was, but they didn't recognize the splendor. A king he was, but they thought he was far too meager and lowly. He didn't ride in a fancy golden chariot. He didn't ride on a black stallion or a white horse. Our Savior ultimately would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, a beast of burden, a beast of poverty, not a white stallion, not a black one at that. Jesus in his humility entered this world in the same way that he would accomplish the activities that he was given to do with power but yet with meekness, with firmness when needed but nonetheless unrecognized in terms of all the greatness housed within it. We notice on this occasion of the birth, furthermore, that this same text we just read made mention of shepherds who were watching over their flock by night. These shepherds apparently were not terribly far away on the occasion of this birth. Notice again the reading in verse number 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Isn't it interesting that verse number 9 goes on to say that when the angel informed them of what had occurred, they desired to come and worship, to come and identify, to come and be present in the glorious presence of this babe that had been born. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. When those shepherds heard those words, their heart was filled with joy. Their heart was filled with such excitement. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. The world was in need of a Savior. The world is still in need of a Savior, but He's now come. The Savior is present. The Lord has been born. 
And ultimately, of course, what happened here at his birth would lead finally to the events at Calvary when he would also die for the characteristic salvation of all mankind. The amazing features of this birth perhaps encourage us to think about some lessons that we ought not forget about this birth. We've certainly seen the virgin characteristic of it, that he was born of a woman who had known no man. But there are other lessons too, and in fact we can use the very words of these shepherds to teach us several more lessons. In the time that remains tonight, consider the following thoughts with me. First of all, here in Luke chapter 2, Consider the fact of what these shepherds were told initially. Let us again place the emphasis by reading this particular verse. Luke chapter 2, verse number 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. That phrase, good tidings, that means good news. The word tidings simply means news or information. And thus to the shepherds they were told, I'm bringing you good ideas, good news. In fact, is there still any better news than to think about the wonderful nature of the gospel, that which the Lord brought, the beautiful idea of salvation through his name? So many times in the New Testament we notice that that very Jesus brought such good ideas to others to whom he came. To Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, one who cried out as the Lord passed by. He cried out, have mercy on me. Jesus paused. He didn't march right on through town and ignore the man. He said, bring him to me. And the Lord healed that blind man. Oh, what good news Bartimaeus understood. Or consider Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Here was a man short of stature. No doubt many had looked upon him with insult due to the fact that he was a publican. No doubt many maybe had made fun of his shortness of stature, and yet when he climbed up in that sycamore tree and the Savior passed by, Jesus made no fun of him. In fact, he said, Zacchaeus, today I'm coming to abide at thy house. Isn't it amazing? Jesus, in fact, brought good tidings to those who he interacted with. He brought to them the very message they needed to hear. Nicodemus in John chapter 3, here was one who came to the Lord by night. He began in a very humble and impressive way by saying, We know that thou art come from God, for no man can do the things that thou doest except God be with him. Without skipping a beat, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And thus Jesus shared with that man the most impressive news he needed to hear. He needed to be informed of the character of the truth that would lead him to salvation. And that's immediately what Jesus shared. Oh, what good news he brought. You see, that same good news he also brings to you and me today. The one and only way to heaven is through him. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4, verse 12. Later we so readily understand the words in Revelation 1, verse 6, where it is through Christ he hath made us kings and priests. That isn't due to my own abilities, for they're far too meager, far too unsatisfactory, and the same is true for you. But Christ has made us that the power of his blood to cleanse us from sin. He can set us recognized and ready to inherit heaven as our eternal home. 
There is no greater news than that. But what else were those shepherds told? They were also told about the birth of the Savior. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. The whole world was in need of a Savior. In Old Testament times, they, the Jews, did by and large that which they were commanded. They offered sacrifices and blood flowed deeply out of the temple area. But yet we read, as we noted even this morning, that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, Hebrews 10 verse 4. The whole world was in need of a Savior. And yet that was the message that these shepherds heard. And to you today is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. Today we can celebrate and rejoice over the fact that that birth occurred. We can appreciate the greatness of it. We ought not attach to it more meaning than the Scriptures do, of course. And we certainly do not know that it was on December 25th. In fact, every piece of scriptural evidence that we have suggests that it would not have been in the month of December. It would appear from the events of the gospel accounts it would be, have been much more likely in the latter part of the spring. But nonetheless, December 25th has been chosen as the time of celebration for the Christmas season. We should realize the New Testament doesn't command of us to celebrate his birth. We do, of course, the events of his death each Lord's Day at the occasion of the memorial, the Lord's Supper. And thus we do not celebrate in a worshipful way his birth. That hasn't been commanded. And in fact, we would be amiss to do so according to the principle of Romans 14. But may we appreciate the glory that has been brought to us by his birth. The fact that as he entered this world and set before us the example of perfection, the example of idealness, the ultimate example of all that is good and righteous. He helped us understand the love of God for us. For it truly again is an absolute maxim that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 16 of John chapter 3. Isn't it also interesting that there is more things that we can appreciate about this Savior the New Testament is filled with so many texts that challenge us in that way. I've listed a few of them on the screen to my left. Consider just a few of them as we consider them in passing. In Matthew 1, verse 21, that angel had already told Joseph. He said, in fact, that God with us, he has come to save his people from their sins. The only salvation from sin then through him or recall that scene in Luke 24 when in the Great Commission these statements were made by Jesus. He said, Thus it is written, And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Who then can rejoice at the thought of the birth of Jesus? Was it only the Jew? Thankfully not. All of us can celebrate at the very thought of the fact the Lord came for me and he came for you. He shed his blood for me and for you. The examples of his life serve for you and for me. All of us can appreciate that goodness. And isn't it interesting too that the thoughts of Acts 13 verses 38 and 39 challenges went on that first missionary journey. Paul, in fact, told the people of that day, you could never be justified until now. In fact, it's only by this man, speaking of Jesus, that you can be justified. 
Each of us stand in need of justification before God. We stand in need of being right with Him and before Him and apart from Jesus that isn't possible. Thankfully then, Jesus' birth brought Him into this world and in so doing, that perfect example allows us, by way of His death, to appreciate the justification that we can also have. The fairness of thought also to be noted in the statement made in verse 14 of Luke chapter 2. We didn't read quite to this far earlier, but notice with me what happened. If we begin in verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Here we find then that as that angel revealed that marvelous news to the shepherds, we are told that a heavenly host appeared and praising to God began to occur. It was a time of marvelous celebration. A member of the Godhead had taken human form and was now in the flesh. Oh, how men ought to take note. Oh, how men ought to recognize His greatness and humbly submit to His will. Notice again, glory to God in the highest. Indeed, God on earth. The incarnation had taken place. All of those thoughts challenge us yet to see that in Philippians 2.11, just as one example, the greatness to be understood is seen in these words. God hath given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in earth and things in heaven and things under the earth, and that at the name of Jesus every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is significant, he said, every knee and every tongue. We each should be so impressively thankful for the birth of Christ, recognizing that the life that came from it, that life of the Savior that was lived, is a life that truly you and I could benefit from so amazingly, and a life that, of course, when we take upon ourselves the measure of it, and proceed to attempt to imitate and follow it, that we will live in a way that's right unto God. But also in this same verse, on earth, peace. Though men may war and fight, and though men may engage in dastardly deeds and evil things where there is no peace, our Savior brings the message of peace. He's called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9, verse 6. His gospel is a gospel of peace, Romans 10, 15. And he did say in John 14, 27, My peace, I live with you. The only peace ultimately we enjoy has to be through Him. It can come no other way. That peace we appreciate and enjoy, notice that word was revealed through that heavenly host in praise on earth, peace. And finally, goodwill toward men. We hinted at this early in our lesson, even this evening, but perhaps think about the goodness that all men have been able to enjoy. Whether they've ever lived to become Christians or not, we hope certainly all men will appreciate the thrust of the Lord's life and strive to become what He wanted them to be. But true enough, all can enjoy benefits of the influence of the life of Jesus. Is it not our Savior who taught in Matthew 7 verse 12, Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. We sometimes call that the golden rule, but even many who are not worshipers, who are not Christians, will at least try to live by that. 
And thus each of us have been positively impacted. But hopefully we will recognize that that ultimate blessing comes in our obedience. The realization that when we imitate his life, and our Savior was baptized, not for the remission of sins, Matthew 3, but to fulfill all righteousness, verse 15. You and I too, in order to fulfill righteousness, that is to become righteous, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We too must submit to the act of immersion in water, baptism for the remission of sins. In Acts 20, verse 35, a text that we will consider this Wednesday evening, if it be the will of God. Did not there Paul say, the recognized power and influence of the gospel, it is more blessed to give than to receive? Again, many in our world who are not Christians will at least try to understand and live by that. But yet that influence came from the Master, came from none other than the Savior himself. These thoughts have challenged us perhaps to conclude that point with Galatians 6 verse 10. As ye have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, but especially unto them who are of the household of faith, doing good unto all men. Oh, how the influences and impact from this life, this one who entered the world now about 20 centuries ago, the birth of Jesus, truly a birth for the ages. In conclusion tonight, would it not be fair to say that at the Incarnation, at the time when the second member of the Godhead took the form of human flesh and entered this world, a truly seminal event took place. Nothing like it had ever happened before. Nothing like it has ever happened since. Nothing like it will ever happen again. God brought forth his Son, sent him into this world, dispatched him from heaven, if you will, and by the influence of his life and the mission that he fulfilled at the cross, the body that he brought into being named of the church, you and I can be saved. Oh, how God desires all men to appreciate that birth, but to pay attention so closely to the example of his life and ultimately to become a Christian and live like the Savior in obedience to the commandments of heaven. Tonight, what about your life and what about mine? Are you such that you have become a Christian but have not been true and faithful to that calling, to the high calling of God in Christ, Ephesians 4.1? If you need to come back to your first love tonight, prayer will be a critical element in it. As you repent and confess of those things to your Heavenly Father, we will be happy to pray on your behalf, with you and for you, that those will be removed and wiped away, never more to be remembered. But if you have never become a Christian, you need to begin that journey. As powerful and as great as the birth of Jesus was, it in many ways was overshadowed by the influence of his death. For that very one born so innocently, and that one who lived so innocently, died at the hands of wicked and cruel men in Acts 2.22. He died shedding his life's blood for you and me. Have you let his blood cleanse your sins and wash them from you? If not, that happens only in baptism. In fact, Paul, Saul at that time was told, And now why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord? Acts 22.16 This evening, if you haven't become a Christian, let tonight be the night. The baptismal waters behind me are warm and ready. Everything is prepared. You, in a matter of moments, could be added to the Lord's church. Jesus, only he can do that. If we could help you in any way in your obedience tonight, hesitate no longer, but let us do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.
my precious blood I shed, that thou might ransom me, and quicken from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee, what hast thou given for me? I gave, I gave my life for thee, what hast thou given for me? My Father's house of light, my glory circled throne, I left for earthly night, for wandering sad and lone. I left, I left it all for thee, hast thou left all for me? I left, I left it all for thee, left all for me. And I have brought to thee down from my home above salvation full and free my pardon and my love I bring I bring rich gifts to thee what hast thou brought for me I bring I bring rich gifts to thee what hast thou brought for me? The table has been left for Faraday, and I should be those that wish to partake of the Lord's Supper. Please let it be known. Let's say again, we appreciate, sincerely appreciate the presence of everyone. Uh, had another good service, Randy, appreciate that. And we just had another good day, and we wish everyone a good week, and Lord willing, we'll meet back on Wednesday night. Nothing further, we'll stand and have a verse of song and dismiss. Bible 1, verse great mansions in that city above, where all is peace and glory, gladness and love. Someday we'll see our Lord in that perfect clime, share with the saints of old his wondrous sublime. There are great mansions, beauty untold, marvelous mansions, city of gold. When life is over and our Savior shall come, we'll ever live with Him in heaven's fair home.
Our Father who art in heaven, Lord, hallowed be thy name. Lord, we thank you for this day and its many blessings. We thank you for the good lessons we've heard. We thank you for every blessing. Thank you for Jesus that left heaven and come to this low land and died that cruel death on Calvary Cross and through the shedding of his blood we might have the hope of eternal life. Go with us now as so we're about to separate. Forgive us of every sin. Bring us back at the next appointed time as our prayer in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen.